You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 11, verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as he stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is our desire that you would sanctify us by your truth, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand your word, to love your word. We pray that you would incline our hearts in and through your word to love you. May we see in here the providence and sovereignty of our God and to give you the glory and honor that you are due. We thank you that you are good and loving and kind, and we pray now that we might understand more of who you are through your word. Open our eyes to it, we pray, that we would glorify you and give you obedience which you so rightly deserve. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to the to the outsider, somebody looking at Christianity from the outside, the death of Christ looks like one of those tragic accidents of history, which is why if you read books by non-believers about the death of Christ, that's all they see in it. Now, they might see in the death of Christ um, a man who is maybe at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, he just happened to run afoul of the religious leaders. He was doing the best he can, and they wanted to rid themselves of him. And so by their own power and to preserve their own power and their own influence, they got rid of him. Or some people would see in Christ somebody who was just a little bit ahead of his time. Uh, the world really wasn't ready for his message of love and truth and social justice and political revolution. And so he they crucified him and killed him. And had he only come on the scene a few hundred years later, people might have been a little bit more ready for change and a little bit more ready for his message. And so they look at Christ and they see this this unfortunate unfolding of events. And really, from the perspective of, of men and from just the human vantage point, it does look like a horribly unfortunate accident of history. There was a man who was loved by so many and he was kind and compassionate and caring and gentle and who could really poke uh, fun at or take issue with his teaching. Such a great guy and just really misunderstood by many of the religious leaders and he stumbled into these wrong situations and then he died such a horribly cruel and bloody, painful and agonizing death. But from the vantage point of a Christian, the death of Christ is not an accident of history. From the vantage point of the Christian, the death of Christ is the event for which history was written. It's not an accident of history. It is the central focus of all of history, everything hinges upon that, that one event. From the human perspective, it seems accidental, but from the divine perspective, looking at it from God's perspective, it was no accident at all. God planned this from eternity past. It was predestined. It was predetermined. This was not plan B, C, or D to redeem man. This was plan A. This was God's intention, his decreed plan to atone for the sins of his people. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who was it that delivered Christ over for crucifixion? It was God who did it. God delivered him over by his predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. And yet it wasn't God who is responsible ultimately for the evil of putting Christ to death. Who is responsible for that evil? The men were. In Acts chapter 4, after reflecting upon Psalm 2, where the psalmist David says that uh, the world, the leaders of the world, the kings of the earth have, have come together and opposed the Lord and His Christ. Peter prayed in Psalm 4, verse 27 and 28, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And that's Peter looking at the death of Christ and realizing Pontius Pilate and Herod, they were responsible for these wicked deeds, but they only did what God's predetermined plan, His foreknowledge, and His predestining decree determined should happen. In fact, the death of Christ was not a surprise to God. God was not trying to avoid that that incident. God was not trying to avoid the cross. God was not trying to find some other way, and neither was Jesus. That was a predetermined predestined plan of God to do that. And this is hard to get your mind around. It pleased God to crush His Son. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, God was pleased to crush Him on our behalf. Not only was this something that God was not trying to avoid, it was God who delivered Christ over to be crucified. Because had God not done that, it could not have happened. And since it was God's predetermined plan that was predestined to occur, it couldn't not happen. It was impossible that it should not happen. In John chapter 10, Jesus is the one who said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Who was it that laid down his life? Jesus did. He laid it down for his sheep. It was his own initiative. There was nothing outside of him that coerced him to do it. There was nothing, no force, no power, no counsel, no group of men that made him do something that he did not want to do. Jesus was not avoiding the cross. In fact, Jesus was singularly fixed on going to the cross in obedience to the will of the Father. And he scorned the shame of that cross. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured that because it pleased the Lord to crush his son. That was his intention all along. Not a cruel accident of history, not happenstance. It is, in fact, the event around which and for which all of history is written. It is the central, the central plan of God that he should crush his son to redeem his people. So looking at the death of Christ, we, we acknowledge two uh, seemingly contradictory, but they are not. They are parallel truths. On the one hand, it is wicked men who, with their wicked motives, planned their wicked deeds. They did it. They crucified him to preserve their power, to preserve their influence, to keep their hands on everything in the nation of Israel. On the other hand, it was God's determined, predetermined plan and his foreknowledge that gladly delivered over his son to be crucified to redeem his people. And any time we begin to focus on one of those at the exclusion of the other one, we become unbalanced in our understanding of the death of Christ. And it is lo simply looking at it from the human vantage point that causes somebody to see the death of Christ and say, wow, what an unfortunate accident of history. And it is somebody looking at it only from the divine standpoint that says it must be God who did this wicked deed and allowed this to happen. So God must be to blame for the wickedness of that act. It's not. It is God in his sovereignty did this, but he did this by his predetermined plan through the actions of these wicked men. And we looked last week at this grand conspiracy that is taking place among the council of the Jews 
in John chapter 11. They're with their wicked motives, planning these wicked deeds, these wicked men, and they are all in. And Caiaphas has presented a plan to the council to to see that Jesus gets killed in order to save the nation. And this is a plan that seemed to take everybody along with it. Everybody seemed to go with it, though we would assume that there were men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were not at all behind this plan. But for the most part, this is now the official The official policy of the Jewish leaders is stated in verse 53. From that point forward, they began to plan together to kill him. From that day on, this became the policy of the Jewish leadership. No longer were they going to leave the death of Christ just up to happenstance. They've been wanting to kill him since chapter 5, verse 18. They set about to kill him there. And that was two and a half years prior to, uh, or two full years prior to the events here, two full years prior to these events. So they've been wanting to kill him for a while. But up until now, they've never really had a plan. They've never really had uh, something on paper. But now, from this point forward, the resurrection of Lazarus, they begin to put into motion a plan to seize Jesus. And it become it became the official policy of the Jewish leadership now to kill him. So they're not just going to leave it up to the opportunity to seize him in the temple. You don't leave something that important just up to random opportunities. You begin to plan your opportunities. And that's what they did. They started to plan their opportunity to seize him. And they put this plan into motion. And any good plan to kill the Son of God would have had to have incorporated the right timing, the right place, and the right people. And those are the three elements that we see in our text here. The right time, the right place, and the right people. And we're going to look at those three, and those that will be our outline for this morning. First of all, the right time. Look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So the verse, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 54 brings us back to what was in verse 53. Why did Jesus go out into the countryside to the city, to a little town called Ephraim? It was because the Jews were plotting to kill him, and Jesus was avoiding the plot of the Jews to kill him. Now, you say, is Jesus avoiding death? Is he avoiding death in verse 54 by going out into the countryside? He's not avoiding death. You know what he is avoiding? He is avoiding death at this time, because this wasn't the time. Right after the death of Lazarus, or the resurrection of Lazarus, was not the time for him to die. And he knew that. He knew that all of this is under the sovereign control, not only of the Lord Jesus, but of the Father. The timing of his death, Jesus is not leaving up to accident. And so he goes out into the countryside, not to avoid death entirely, but to avoid death at this time. And really, this is his means of sovereignly planning and executing his own death. He knew when it was he would lay down his life. And he wasn't going to do it off of the Father's timetable. He knew that it would not be at the resurrection of Lazarus. It would not be a day or a week after the resurrection of Lazarus. He would lay down his life at Passover. That was his intention. And that was when he knew that he would die. And so he went out into the wilderness to avoid death. Not permanently, but only for a time. Now really, the timing of his death has been under his control since the beginning. And I want you to turn back to chapter 7. I'm going to remind you of something that we looked at a while ago. Back in John chapter 7, a full six months before this Passover, Jesus went up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And you remember in chapter 7, his brothers began to taunt him, saying, If you seek to be known publicly, verse 4, no one does anyone in secret, does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his brothers are kind of taunting him. You want people to know you're the Christ? Go up and make a public presentation. Present yourself publicly to the Jews. Uh, let them see you. Make, make this public declaration up there and, and see how they res- respond to it. And Jesus said to them in verse 6, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Then he says in verse 8, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet come. And what he meant was I'm not going up to the feast in the manner in which 
you are suggesting. You're suggesting I go up and make a public demonstration. Jesus went up to the feast, but he went up quietly, as it were, because we find out later on in chapter 7, actually we find out in chapter 7, verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Jesus said in verse uh, 6 and in verse 8 that his time had not yet come. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid their hands on him. So he has been right in the midst of the Jews, and they have been wanting to seize him, trying to seize him, looking for opportunities to arrest him, and they've been unable to. Why? It wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. They could not arrest him or lay a hand on him until his time had come. So Jesus is the one who is sovereignly controlling the timing of his death. And he went out into the wilderness, and his going out into the wilderness was his way, his means of controlling the time of his death. And by the way, for those of you who have theological eyes and ears to see that in the text, in John chapter 11, Jesus is making a theological statement by going out into Ephraim. And you know what that statement was? The statement to the Jews was this. You are not in control of when I die. You want me dead. And he just turns and walks out into the wilderness. And his statement to them is, you do not control when I die. He would die, but he would die on his timetable, through his appointed means, his way, in his timing, at his place of his choosing, he would lay down his life. You and I are supposed to see that Caiaphas is plotting this whole thing, his wicked deeds, his wicked actions, his motives, all of that, But at the same time, Jesus is the one who is sovereignly in control of all of the details of his death. And as all of this comes together, all of it is under his control. It's his timing. So he went out into the city of Ephraim. And that's kind of significant. I think we can learn something here from Jesus. Is it appropriate for a servant of Christ, somebody who is serving the Lord and seeking to be true and faithful to him, is it ever appropriate for a servant of Christ to flee from danger? I think it is. Is it ever appropriate for a servant of Christ to go straight into the midst of danger and to face danger head on when your life is being threatened. It certainly is. Both of those are appropriate actions. And in fact, we see both of those being done not only by the Lord Jesus, but also by the apostles. I'll give you an example of both from the life of Jesus and from the life of Paul. There were times when Jesus knew that his life was in danger. John chapter 7, they knew that the Jews were trying to kill him. In fact, he went into the temple and he began to argue with the Jews and he confronted them. He said, for a good deed I did to a lame man, you now on the Sabbath, you now want to kill me. And they said, who, kill you? We don't want to kill you. And yet everybody knew that was the worst kept secret in all of Jerusalem that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. And yet he went right into the lion's den, as it were, right into the heart of Jerusalem and faced them down. And he taught in the temple and they picked up stones to stone him in John chapter 8. And he walked out of the temple. He went back into the temple six months later, three months later at the Feast of Dedication. And they tried to stone him again. And he stood in the temple, even though he knew that they would pick up stones to stone him. In the temple, he declared himself to be one with the Father. There are times when Jesus walked right into the face of hostile enemies and face dangers, putting, as it were, from the human perspective, his own life at risk. There are other times, like here, where Jesus simply walked and turned away and went away from the danger. You see it in the life of the Apostle Paul as well. His first missionary journey, he went to the city of Lystra, and you remember that the people, after he healed the man, they thought he was uh, Paul was Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus, and they wanted to worship them, but then Jews came from Antioch and stirred up the crowds. And you know what they did? They stoned Paul and left him for dead. So Paul got up and he went to the next city and then his return trip, he went right back to the city of Lystra where he had been stoned only days prior and risked his own life to encourage the believers there. 
In Acts chapter 21, when Paul was on his return to Jerusalem to worship there, remember Agabus met him and Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his hands and said, the man who owns this belt will be bound by the Jews and delivered over to the Gentiles. And what did Paul say? Paul said, I am ready not only to, to go to Jerusalem, but to give my life if necessary. And he went, even in the midst of that prophet, in the face of that prophecy, he went right into the heart of Jerusalem, knowing that he would be arrested. That seems foolhardy to some of us. But then after he was arrested, you remember Lysias began to prep everything to beat Paul. And what did Paul do? He played the Roman citizenship card. Is it lawful to beat a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And he avoided the beating. And then when he was, when he found out through his nephew that everybody had, had put a plot together to execute Paul, to assassinate Paul, what did Paul do? He went and he had Lysias informed and they stuck him out of Jerusalem under the cover of darkness. He was fleeing danger. And when he was in Caesarea and the Jews came there to testify against Paul, when Paul feared that he might be handed back over to the Jews and taken to Jerusalem for trial, Paul appealed to Caesar. He was avoiding death. On the ship, when the Apostle Paul and everybody else had reason to believe that the ship was lost on the way to Rome and that all the crew would be lost, Paul was assured that he would stand before Caesar and testify before Caesar. But that didn't make him foolish. Instead, Paul took steps and actions to avoid the danger of the shipwreck. So is it appropriate for a servant of Christ to plunge headlong into danger and to risk their lives and to go into a place where they might be killed or martyred for the faith? Yep. Is it appropriate for them to flee danger? It certainly is. So here's the question. How do you know when it is appropriate to face danger and when it is appropriate to flee danger? I have no idea the answer to that question. I don't. There's no There's no formula in Scripture that says if, if these things are in place, you run headlong into it, and if these things are in place, you flee it. We just have examples of both, and we ought to be content with the examples of both to know that there are times when we face danger and times when we flee danger. There are times when we speak up. There are times when it is wise and good, and it is your duty to keep your mouth shut. And it is appropriate to do both. And we ought to remember that. So Paul, not Paul, sorry, Paul's on the mind. Jesus went out into the city of Ephraim. Now, it's not a busy place. It's not a bustling place. It's not a resort destination community. Not a lot of people there. In fact, today, we don't even know for sure where that city is at. A lot of people uh, associated with Ephron mentioned in the Old Testament, and that might be it. But the fact that it is, for all intents and purposes, been lost to history is an evidence of its obscurity even in Jesus' day. This was a small village out just outside the reach of the Jews. If we have currently identified what we really are probably certain that is the city of, of Ephraim, If we have that right, that means that Jesus went just 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. So he wasn't a long ways away, but he was outside of the immediate reach of the Jewish leaders who were trying to kill him. And he went out there and he spent that time, John says, with his disciples. And here's an interesting fact about this couple of weeks. It might have been a couple of weeks or a couple of months out in that city with the disciples. None of the other Gospels mention any miracles or any teaching that Jesus did in the city of Ephraim. For the most part, we can assume that it was just a very quiet time that Jesus had with himself and with his disciples, out of the public view. There were no miracles that are recorded in that city during that period of time. And why should there be? Miracles were given to authenticate the messenger before unbelievers, but the disciples were not unbelievers. There's no need to do miracles out there before his disciples, and so none are recorded of that period of time. It was just a quiet time that Jesus spent out there with his disciples until the Passover. Look at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Now the Passover, we're going to look at the significance of that in coming months, but what I just want you to recognize and notice now is that the Passover is the central aspect, the central aspect of this timing from the perspective of Jesus and of the, of the Father. 
Jesus was not going to die at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's not going to die between feasts. He's not going to die at the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus knows it's Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He is waiting for the Passover. When Passover arrives, he would go into Jerusalem to lay down his life for his sheep by his own initiative. That was his plan. So Passover is central in that plan of God. This is the third time in John's Gospel that the Passover is mentioned by name. It's mentioned in chapter 2. There was a Passover that we mark in chapter 2 right before he cleansed the temple. There's a Passover in chapter 6 right before he, uh, right, it's actually after, but it's mentioned before he uh, multiplied the bread and the fish and walked on water for the disciples. And then this is the third Passover that's mentioned by name. Now you know the three Passovers, that only marks two years, right? But as I mentioned in chapter 5 verse 1, there is an unnamed feast mentioned in chapter 5 verse 1. The feast is not named, but most people suspect that that was a Passover as well. So that means that John has marked four Passovers or three years in the life of Jesus now in his gospel. So this is the final Passover, the final Passover. And this Passover is the one at which Jesus is waiting for this to arrive. This is the Passover at which he would give his life for his sheep. That is the right time. The right time is Passover. and He's waiting for that. Now, second, we need the right place. And the right place is Jerusalem. Look at verse 55. Yet many people who are going up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So this was one of the feasts of Israel where every adult male was required to attend the feast and the celebration in Jerusalem. So you had from all over the nation of Israel and even far and distant lands down in Ethiopia and Egypt, anywhere Jews were scattered, you had Jewish males who were making the pilgrimage back to the city of Jerusalem. Historians estimate that at the time of Passover, the population of the city of Jerusalem would have swelled to about a million people. Now that is a lot of people. A million people is a lot of people, especially for Jerusalem, which was not a a large city by our standards. Don't think of Jerusalem as being the size of Spokane or Boise, Idaho or Los Angeles. The city of Jerusalem at the time was a small city, just a little bit larger than the temple and even with its surrounding environs. To have a million people in that city at one time, that is that is huge. So you can imagine how packed full of people that city was at the time of Passover. And why are people going up? They're going up to purify themselves. Because people could not, the, the Jews could not celebrate a feast like the Passover without first purifying themselves of their ceremonial uncleanliness. Now if you read through the book of Leviticus, you will find that there are hundreds of ways that a Jew could become ceremonially unclean. Touch a corpse, touch something that a corpse fell on, touch something that a corpse looked at before it became a corpse. I mean, there were all kinds of ways that you could become ceremonially unclean and unfit to celebrate the Passover. The Jews were aware of this, and they wanted to make sure that when they arrived in Jerusalem, ready to celebrate the Passover, that they were purified outwardly, ceremonially, of all uncleanliness, so that they could celebrate the Passover. In Numbers chapter six, 9, verse 6, there is an example of this with Moses and Aaron. Numbers 9, 6 says, There were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron. And that's what they're looking at, the ceremonially unclean, un, ceremonial uncleanliness that would keep them from celebrating the Passover. So they would go up early to Jerusalem with a million people descending on the city. You want to get there early enough that you can offer a sacrifice to make atonement, to have the priest pronounce you clean so that you are ready to celebrate the Passover. This is the, the high and holy day of the Jewish year. You don't want to mess this up. So they're going up for ceremonial purification. Now don't miss the irony here. There's a, there's a stark ir- irony. These Jewish leaders are plotting the death of an innocent man, and they are leading the people in ceremonial purification. Do you notice that? Plotting the death of an innocent man, 
and leading the people in ceremonial purification. That is the depth and wickedness of the sinful human heart. Sinful man has a profound ability to overlook the grossest of sins of the heart while being active in all of the ceremonial, ritual, and surface purification. Have you met such people? I've met people who are consumed with going to this Mass and that Mass and early Mass and late Mass and middle Mass and the Mass Mass and the Mass before the Mass and Christmas Eve Mass and praying the Rosary and doing all of those things, going through all of the ceremonial, all of the outward things to make sure that they are quote-unquote right with God. And then they will turn away from that and they will commit the most egregious sins without even blinking, thinking that they are covered because they have kept all of the outward purifications and the rites and rituals of piety. Or consider the Christian who would dare to sit under the preaching of the Word and read his Bible or her Bible and uh, listen to preaching and pray and take communion and all the while plot active and blatant disobedience to the Word of God in their heart and in their mind and love it and love it so. Have you met such people? I had a friend who told me that growing up he was never allowed, they were never allowed to have a TV in their home. That was the portal for hell. Anything that was in hell came right through the television set. It was unclean, it was worldly, it was sinful, it was fleshly. We never wanted the the devil's tube in our home, he said, but because his family viewed it as, as worldly, so they weren't allowed to have one. But on Super Bowl Sunday and during the Stanley Cup, they would rent a hotel room and the whole family would go and they would sit and watch TV in the hotel room so they didn't miss the Stanley Cup and the Super Bowl. It wasn't their TV after all. It wasn't in their house. We have a profound ability to think that we are acceptable to God because we are waging war against little tiny peccadillos, little tiny insignificant sins in our lives, while we tolerate and justify the grossest of immoralities in our hearts and in our minds. That is what these men were doing, plotting the death of the Son of God and leading people in ceremonial ritual purification. And it never occurs to anybody how, how, how completely at odds those two, two lines of thinking are. And yet they wage war against each other. You would think that they would see the hypocrisy of that, but they are oblivious to the hypocrisy of that. So they're plotting the death of Christ while leading the people in ceremonial purification. The right place, the right place is Jerusalem. The right time is the Passover. Now look at the right people, verses 56 and 57. Oh, by the way, Jesus didn't go up to the feast to Passover for purification. You notice that? While the people are coming from the country into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is leaving the environs of Jerusalem and going out into the country. He didn't come to Jerusalem to purify himself. Why is that? Because he knew no sin. He did no sin. He had no sin. No sin was in him. He didn't need to purify himself for Passover. He's the Passover lamb who is spotless and without blemish, perfect and holy and pure and undefiled. He doesn't need to come to Jerusalem to purify himself. He is pure. He would come to Jerusalem as the pure sacrifice for sin. He didn't need to purify himself beforehand. So he is out in the country during that period of time. Now, look at verse 56. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now, the they at the beginning of verse 56 is likely a reference not to the people who are coming up to purify themselves, to Jerusalem to purify themselves. The they is likely a reference to the Pharisees and the chief priests who are mentioned again in verse 57. They are mentioned in verse 53. It's those ones, the Pharisees and the priests, who are standing in the temple asking this question. Now, there might be one question there, or it might be two questions there. And in the original language, it could be either one. It could be one question being asked or two questions being asked. And let me kind of explain this to you. I don't know if it's one or two, but I'll just tell you how it could be translated. If it's one question, then the question is this. 
what do you think about the question of whether or not he will come up to the feast? In other words, the issue of whether Jesus is coming to the feast, what say ye about that? Yea or nay? Will he come to the feast? If it is two questions that they are asking, then the chief priests are asking these questions. First, what do you think? Question mark. In other words, what is your opinion of this one who is called Christ? The second question being, is he going to come up to the feast at all? What do you say about him, and is he coming up to the feast at all? That's where they're wondering, and where are they wondering it? In the temple. Now here's another subtle irony. Who owns the temple? Whose house of worship is it? It's Jesus' Father's house. He said, it's my Father's house. It's his temple. That temple was dedicated to the worship of Almighty God. They're standing in God's temple, looking for God to show up so they can kill him. That is ironic. I mean, the irony, John is so good with weaving in these little details. Standing in Jesus' temple, his turf, his Father's house, looking for him. Why would they go to the temple and look for him? Because they had seen him there on previous Passovers, and they had seen him there at the the Feast of Tabernacles. They had encountered him there. They had argued with him there. They had picked up stones to stone him there. They had tried to seize him there. They know that if he's coming to Jerusalem, he is likely going to make an appearance at the temple. So they're standing in the temple. And I, I wish we could just be a fly on the wall and see them. They're standing in the temple and they're scanning the crowd looking for a disciple, looking for Jesus, looking for the big nose and the, the horn rim glasses and everything, and that ball cap, you know, that everybody disguises themselves with a ball cap, looking for something out of place, waiting for him to show up. Why? They want to seize him. And so they're standing in the temple waiting for him, looking as these tens of thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem. Their eyes are open and they are scanning and waiting for him to show up. And not only are they involved in looking for him, but they have made others complicit in their sin. Look at verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now they have involved other people in their sin and they have given orders to all who are coming into Jerusalem. It's no longer quiet. It's no longer something under the cover of darkness. It's no longer even something the religious leaders are trying to deny. They are now open about their plans. If you know where Jesus is, we want you to tell us so that we can go and we can arrest him. We can seize him. Now everybody knows what their plan is and everybody knows what their intention is. They're going to arrest and kill Jesus. And now they are trying to get other people to betray innocent blood. And they put the people in a very difficult position. If we say nothing, we violate the orders of our rulers. But if we turn him over, we have betrayed innocent blood, which was a violation of the law. So now the religious leaders who are plotting the death of Jesus while they lead people in purification are asking the people to betray innocent blood right before the Passover by turning over an innocent man to be executed and killed. They're leading them in purification while also at the same time leading them in what? The grossest of iniquities and the grossest of sins. That's their intention. I have found, and you will observe, that wicked people are seldom content to simply engage in their wickedness by themselves. Wicked people always want to include other people in their iniquity and to get other people to come along. They want your approval. They want your endorsement. They want you to, to give approbations to them for what they do. They want government sanction. They want government funding. They want government approval. They want government recognition. They want the culture, the people, and everybody around them to approve of what they're doing. And if you don't approve of what a wicked man or a woman is doing, then you must be nothing more than a bigot or a racist or a homophobe or whatever it is. Wicked people are seldom content to just engage in their wickedness. And these men are the same. They're not content to just try and kill the Son of God. Now they want other people to turn him over too. We want other people to betray innocent blood. And you can see how all of these pieces are starting to come together, right? We got the right time, which is Passover. We have the right place, which is Jerusalem, and now the right people. 
And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem during the final week of his life, which is in chapter 12, verse 6, or verse 1, Jesus comes up six days before the Passover. So we are entering in chapter 12. We enter into the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he knows that the religious leaders are wanting to kill him. He knows that. He also knows that they have given an order so that if anybody knows where he is at, they are to turn him in. Not only does Jesus know this, but the disciples know that the Pharisees are looking for Jesus, and the disciples know that they are looking for somebody to turn him in. And if the disciples know that, then guess who else knows it? Judas knows it. Judas knows, as they approach Jerusalem, that the Pharisees are after Jesus, and the Pharisees are looking for a traitor. Judas knows that. So we have the right place, the right time, and now we have the right people, the chief priests, and all they need is a traitor. All they need is somebody willing to betray innocent blood for them. And they find that in Judas, who actually starts to play a central role in chapter 12. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for the blessing of, of uh, Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. As we look at the unfolding of history, this grand redemptive plan that you have put into place and that you have you initiated by your grace, we stand in awe at how everything came together just as you have planned it. And you used wicked men with their wicked motives and desires to bring to pass what you had predestined in eternity past. Thank you for sending the Lamb, who is our Passover Lamb, without spot and without blemish, to die in our place and on our behalf, to lay down his life for us, his sheep. We thank you for that grace. We thank you for what he did and his willingness to do that, to purchase us, a people who are from a a people and a a tribe of people from every tribe and tongue tongue and kindred under the face of this on the face of this planet you have truly by your grace redeemed a mass of humanity and we are thankful that we are part of that we praise you and we thank you in the name of our great god and savior jesus christ amen thank you for listening to the latest podcast from kootenai church If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.